Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Welcome to HPI. I am Dr. Cody Jackson, and I'll be your navigator through today's journey of history of present interview. WOMA's series at the crossroads where the interests of the people meet the people of interest. WOMA is the Western Regional Component of the American College of Occupational and Environmental Medicine. WOMA podcasts are a benefit for WOMA members to stay current on topics of interest to occupational and environmental medicine physicians and allies. The WOMA Education Committee members involved in planning this presentation and Dr. Sandrock have no relevant financial relationships to disclose and have no conflicts of interest. Today's podcast is our last installment of updates surrounding the COVID-19 pandemic. Today, we'll be discussing leadership during the pandemic and how COVID has affected and changed EMR practices. To help us out, we have Dr. Christian Sandrock, an internist who specializes in critical care, infectious disease, and pulmonary disease. Welcome to the show, Christian. Thank you. Good morning or good afternoon. I once had a professor that said, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's what I'm realizing. Depends where you guys are listening. Yes, exactly. We have listeners all over the world, so I'm sure one of those will be appropriate, huh? (laughs) COVID is such a heavy topic and quite depressing, if I'm honest. So given the enormous negativity in the world, I'd like us to share something positive going on in our lives with our listeners. I'll kick it off and give thanks to one of my neighbors who's a generation older than I am, who has invited me to um, a group of tennis friends that he's known along with their families for the past 30 years. And they blew my mind with their, their kindness and love for one another, breaking the stereotypes I had of them in my mind. And so it's always, um, so they've reminded me to always like keep an open mind. (laughs) I'm very fortunate for that. (laughs) That's, a, that's actually a good one. You know, it's always good to be uh, humbled and keeping that open mind. I would say um, probably one thing I'm thankful for, I had, you know, I was, did night shift uh, this past weekend and, you know, 3.34 in the morning, I had one patient who was unfortunately doing really poorly. It was an expected death and demise. And just the, the quality of this family at the bedside, you know, we obviously have people who die regularly in our healthcare practice, but some families handle it well, some don't. And this family was just so fantastic. I'm actually just grateful for them because I left that room being like, you know, I'm in the middle of the night, you're working, you're irritated that you're awake. And this family just set you straight. Like it was just nice seeing a really good family, really high quality. They love their family members. They were really tight knit. Um, And it was just was a pleasure to see. And I don't get that that often. So uh, I'm thankful and grateful for that. So I kind of went home and told my wife, I'm like, okay, here's how we got to shape up our situation here, you know, (laughs) which was good, but uh, it was just a pleasurable family. Yeah, that's great to hear. Of course, throughout this pandemic, there's just been, you know, people dying quite lonely, you know, with the restrictions of having family members in the room or whatnot. So there's been a lot of that isolation there. So it's great that, you know, someone was a able to have a, a good death and, you know, that they were able to provide that comfort to the people taking care of their loved one. Yeah. Yeah. Really quite, quite a good group. I appreciate your time and openness and allowing us to get to know you better. Uh, can you first tell us about how public health leadership has evolved over the pandemic and uh, maybe at the federal and state levels? 
Wow, that's a great question. I actually, um, I might plead, which I sometimes will do with my patients, is I'll just say, you know, I actually don't know. And it's mainly because, you know, now I'm at UC Davis, I'm in academics. Um, over my time, I sort of moved away from public health a little more into being an old school doc again, working in a hospital. But I think, you know, what I've sort of seen is, um, and this is just my bias, there was a lot of guidance and information given out to, you know, local um, entities, whether, you know, it's particular a corporation to a uh, employee health group, whether it's to a hospital or a health system, you know, um, or even county, you know, public health is given some directive. I think that was maybe the first, one of the first ways that I sort of became, you know, interacted with them. And I think that's still present. But it seems to have changed to the point where, you know, a lot of a lot of this data, especially in the pandemic, is real time. And you might make a guidance that subsequently has to be changed. It could be a day later. It could be a month later. But as our research evolves, um, our recommendations change. And I think that's not something we were used to doing. And I think that real time transition and changing of recommendations is something that's newer for us and newer from whether it's federal, state or local leadership. Um, and they're all obviously connected, but I think that's definitely played a big role. If you think of the masking discussions we had when, when um, SARS-CoV-2 first came on the scene, that we weren't as aggressive with masking. Now we are, then we became very aggressive with masking. Now it's like a, a more of a nuanced approach. Yeah, masks are mandated, but hey, it's indoors only in, in these certain situations and in these situations you don't need to. So it's that evolution of taking the data and applying it in real time, which we weren't really used to doing to the same extent. If you think of the H1N1 pandemic, that was a new strain. We still did what we always did. Um, it didn't really change that way. So that would probably be one thing I can think of. Perfect. Thank you so much. As a heads up for our listeners, we will be having uh, public health officer, Will Humble, who spoke at, at WALK for, for the state of Arizona. He'll be doing a webinar for us in February. So well, more to come on that for our listeners. <laughs> the pandemic has uh, made everything so complicated, as you mentioned, the various policies being implemented at the hospital and system level. How has the hospital leadership been affected by this pandemic? That's been a real challenge. So, you know, this is one of making sure you meet the needs of your, certainly your employees and patients, which is um, something we've always been used to doing. But, um, you know, hospital operations and lead, or hospital leadership, excuse me, is largely revolved around operations and the operational care, right? So keeping ORs open, keeping them staffed, making sure there's appropriate people there, um, you know, meeting all the policies and procedures that are needed to be accredited by the Joint Commission and so forth. That still happens, but a lot of that went by the wayside and it was much more, okay, how do we make sure we have the right amount of people showing up? How do we deal with a certain amount of worker attrition, whether it's um, you know, them being ill and from COVID, whether they're declining vaccines, whether they are, you know, there's a mental health component and they don't want to be in the acute care arena anymore. That, that really, I think, has uh, moved its way up. It used to be much lower level in the staffing office, for example. I will tell you that our CEO, C CMO, um, C you know, COO and CNO, you know, the main C-suite people, know this on a daily basis. to say a, a C-suite. Yeah. yeah, the C-suite people. I should just say it, right? But then there's like a chief quality officer. They probably don't know that. And there's a few other chief information officer. You don't need that. Um, but really the main people in the C-suite, I think, um, you know, I want it was more of a test for myself to see if my mental health is available to say all the C-people, right? Um, but, 
<laughs> I think there's um, that that minute detail was not always up in hospital operations every day, you know, to know how where what's our oxygen capacity at, you know, what number of ventilators do we have? Where are we short on staffing? You know, those were things that people knew about. Those were ongoing issues always, but it was much lower down the organization chart than it is now. And I think it's really like putting out these bigger fires and making sure that things stay open and the emergencies are well controlled is something that I think has changed. So it's really just a a shift in the focus and then a heck of a lot more meetings around it. Right. So to have, you know, multiple, you know, we've gone from having, you know, no command center meetings to having command center meetings every day to having COVID command center meetings multiple times a day, including night shift, you know, back to just maybe a couple times a day. So that shifting up and down of, you know, situation status meetings and having to have, you know, have those uh, regular discussions was something that they were not used to, I think. And I, you know, I'm not used to, I'm not high enough in the hospital right. leadership to know, so I can call them a day. I'm not in that seat, <laughs> but um, yeah, it seems like that's changed quite a bit. Perfect. Thank you. Okay. Now, you know what time it is, right? Here at HPI, we throw in some fun questions to get to know you better. Ready? Uh, perfect. We'll do it. As a leader in your field, please tell us something um, that Christian, you have a passion for outside of medicine. passion outside of medicine. So I would say um, I definitely have a passion for cooking. Um, So I think that's definitely one thing. And I've sort of uh, adapted a slight passion into brewing my own beer and slash, um, you know, distilling my own alcohol. So it's kind of an extension of cooking, but it's moved into beer and alcohol. Now it was, um, you know, I sort of have a bucket list of things to do. I wanted to learn how to at least make the major types of alcohol from scratch, you know, not just from like a kit, but from scratch. And I think that's still ongoing. I just um, actually later tonight, I'll open up a Sasanda Noel I brewed to see if it's drinkable for uh, the holidays, which it probably is, but I tried a new carbonation method. So we'll see if that's, uh, if it messed it up or not. So very nice. What is the type of food that you like to cook? You know, honestly, I will cook just about anything. Um, I started out with mostly, um, you know, as uh, the standard baker patisserie style of stuff, but I'll mostly do anything. I think, you know, my, I have a daughter who's one who's very musically talented. Actually, a couple of my kids are, but one who's really musically talented and she can pretty much pick up any instrument in 30 minutes can partially play it or hear a song once and pretty much play the song back to you. There's like this something weird in her brain that she's exceedingly good at hearing things. I don't have that gene. I don't know where the hell it came from, but I will tell you <laughs> with, cook, with cooking, I can go to a restaurant, try something. And in general, I know what I'm eating and I can go home and get myself about 80% of the way there without you know, looking at a recipe. So for me now, I, um, a lot of my cooking is um, farmer's market based. So, and I have my own garden, which I guess that's another passion. I've enjoyed growing a lot now. Um, which is a sort of newer, but um, whatever I'm growing, I'll just kind of improvise and make stuff. And if I don't know how, if it's in an area that I want to make, or I tried something in a restaurant or a place that I want to, uh, that's going to be a little bit different. I will sort of uh, improvise a little bit in newer arenas. So. Awesome. That sounds a little bit like top chef there. So yeah, awesome. uh, it could be, you know, sadly, I actually believe it or not, I got rid of cable. I watch so little TV now. Um, I do watch, obviously, I mean, who doesn't watch Netflix? You know, right. I think you know, you'd have that's you'd have some mental health issue if you don't know Netflix and you haven't watched all the episodes of Squid Game or Ted Lasso or whatever. But I, I still I'm not that out of it that I've done those. But yeah, most of those other shows I don't get to see anymore. So COVID's given us an experience none of us would have expected. And the, the handling and the outcomes are vastly different than the Spanish flu of 1918. I want to know where in time you would go and why. 
where in time I would go and why? Ah, always a good, uh, a good question. And I think, you know, when you and I talked in the past, I said I'd go to when there was no people on this planet to see the way the world was before we screwed it up with climate change. And I will tell you, I, that's still pretty high on my list. I think probably second, um, I had a grandfather who, you know, I would like to go back to the 30s um, and early 40s when he was in his 20s and oh, um, yeah. see what that was like and meet him. So I would say that probably would be one of the things I wouldn't mind doing. That might be next awesome. on my list. Yeah. <laughs> All righty. So next up is our rapid fire questions. Remember, we'll just give you a minute to, to answer them quickly and just say the first thing that pops into your head. Okay, perfect. I like it. Can you be too smart for your own good? Oh, yes. Yes, what I can. Are your, <laughs> what are your favorite three letters of the English alphabet? So I'm from New Jersey. I'll let you guys finish the fourth. F, U, and C. Okay. <laughs> so, the most versatile okay. word in the um, Next. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't know if I'll get you guys in trouble, no. Um, yeah. Actually, I've, as a kid, honestly, I've always liked X, Y, and Z. <laughs> we'll, we'll be more honest that's i like sort of the end of the alphabet a lot what do you think will eventually lead to the demise of humankind and when will it happen oh i would say uh, i actually think it's going to be climate change and i think we probably have about another 150 to 200 years depressingly so <laughs> take us through your most interesting or rewarding experience in any of your your disciplines Oh, you know, that's always a challenge. Jeez, that's a tough one. Um, a lot of critical care, you know, I went at, one of the big reasons I went into critical care was sort of um, a lot of the ups and downs that are associated with uh, medicine. You know, it, to be a primary care doctor and to manage blood pressure, you know, you don't normally see health improvements over visit, one visit. You see health improvements over years. And I actually really admire that, but I'm still, unfortunately, I'm a bit more of an instant satisfaction gratification kind of guy. So, you know, for me to start a vasopressor in the ICU and see the blood pressure come up, that works more with my personality style. Um, but I really, interestingly enough, I don't think a lot of my gratification comes from that. I would probably say the, it's more dealing with the families, right? Because your patients, when they're in the ICU, they're critically ill, they're intubated, they're in a coma. Um, I obviously will see some that speak to us and they interact. And while that's gratifying and helpful, I think that's really, you know, quite wonderful. But to watch a family, you know, manage either a patient's, you know, their one of their family members' deaths, or to manage and navigate that critical illness, there's something still just satisfying about having that relationship with the family and helping them get through it. That um, I don't know, that's still probably the most satisfying thing. You know, I can have a couple really bad COVID cases where it's miserable. You know, the patients are tough. It's hard. The outcomes are poor. But if like every 10th patient, I get a family that, you know, and a patient that's really just in a great place. And even if the outcome is poor and they die, that the how it's sort of managed and how you interact with the family still gives me a level of gratification that hasn't gone away in 20 years doing this. And it's a lasting effect on the family, too, to have a positive experience at such a negative time as well, I think. Yeah, it's, it's hard. I mean, they're the ones left behind, unfortunately. So going even a bit more granular into the clinic now, how has COVID affected or changed EMR practices and or efficiencies? Oh, that's a good question. Yeah. So you have interesting ones. I never really, think I do like that. having all the good questions. So I appreciate yeah. that. Yeah, no, I never really think <laughs> of the EMR. EMR is one of those things that, that you don't really think about until it fails. 
And then you're like, where the hell did it go? And it's making my right. life miserable. Right. Um, and the rest of the time you bitch about how annoying the computer is. Right. <laughs> but uh, yes. I think um, some of the efficiencies that uh, really helped us, obviously, for example, thromboembolic disease or some of our cardiac disease or certain infectious disease states, we have order sets that really, you know, sepsis order sets where we are able to check and highlight a lot of the main things that we can, um, you know, use in patient management. And it makes our management easier of those disease states. But with COVID, it was sort of evolving so quickly. It's not like we can have a COVID order set where everything sort of fell into place. So um, it was really disparate, whether it might be remdesivir or a monoclonal antibody or steroids or your ECMO orders or your ventilator orders. They were, it was really a lot of um, different things that really went into taking care of some of these COVID patients that were really pretty disparate within our EMR sets of orders. And I think what really became efficient was our ability to go back to writing one-time orders that were all over the place. So for example, the continuum of oxygenation, you might have nasal cannula to high flow nasal cannula all the way to mechanical ventilation. And those are all different order sets that you write at each time you're managing those patients. But some patients will go in and out of varying levels of oxygen and use high flow and standard nasal cannula. So our ability to write those orders and order sets for that varying level of patient care, but also make sure the nurse had clear direction that, that we meet joint, you know, joint commission requirements was a challenge. You know, that's not something we really, you know, got used to doing. We had these order sets that were very clear. If they transitioned from one form of oxygen to the other, you delete one order set, you add one. But that variability among COVID patients didn't really allow us to do that as easily. And I think we went back to sort of having that work well. So I don't know how, you know, it, and again, we want our, our teams to be able to do their jobs. So as a physician, you write an order. The last thing you want is them to have to call you, you know, every half hour to get clarification or to rewrite the order. Um, you want to be able to give them the latitude to do their, to be professionals. Right. And um, I think that we had to be reminded of that a lot during this pandemic early on, and we've gotten good at doing it again. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Christian. It's been a pleasure getting to know your HBI. Until next time, everyone, please stay safe, stay healthy.